Welcome to God Books, the podcast where we talk to bookshop owners all around the world. On this episode, booksellers have a sort of Hippocratic oath like doctors. So if you come to the shop, I'm never going to tell anybody what books you buy because it's not their business. Located in Chelsea, London, John Sandow Books has books on every available surface in Nuke, over three floors and three shops. The 18th century Georgian premises have been home to this beloved bookshop since 1957. A former newsagent and tobacconist, John Sandow Books locked the spirit of the 50s inside and remained faithful to its ethos and passionate dedication to great books. A testament to the quality of the spread is its clientele, from Elton John and Mick Jagger to Edna O'Brien and William Boyd. Our guests today are Arabella Friesen and Johnny DeFalb, partners both in life and in bookselling. Johnny took over the shop from bookselling legend John Sandow in 1986, together with Stuart Grimshaw. Their love of books transpires not only in the books they select and sell, but also in their conversations with authors and readings they do on the John Sandow Books podcast. We are happy to have them as guests today and to find out the secret of John Sandow Books' longevity and charm. Hello, Johnny and Arabella, and welcome to God Books. Very happy to have you. Where are you joining us from today? Well, the shop is in London. But we ourselves, because of lockdown, we've been working remotely now since just before Christmas in Wales, in southwest Wales, which is where Arabella's house is. I know that you're not in the shop right now, but could you maybe take our listeners through this imaginary tour of the bookshop? Okay. The shop is... Two little tiny 18th century buildings joined together. They're old farm workers' buildings, they would have been. But they've been a shop or shops for 100 years or something. And the bookshop started there in 1957 in a small part of these buildings. And gradually over the years, we've acquired a lease on this and a lease on that. So now the two buildings are joined together in one shop. And it's three floors It's about 900 square foot. It's quite small, but there are books absolutely everywhere, up and down the stairs, all over the place. There are no signposts anywhere, nothing to tell you where anything is, only people. So you know where everything is? Well, of course, you could catch us out any number of times, but we think we know where things are. Yeah, You cannot have a bookshop with no signposts in unless somebody thinks they know where things are. People sometimes assume because there are no labels that it's impossible to find things. They think because there are no labels that it's haphazard, but actually it's not haphazard at all. Yeah, I can imagine. I think it's because we live in this age of internet and you don't have to remember anything, so we don't rely on our memories anymore. And uh, That's um, very true. Yeah. yeah. So people are always shocked when someone remembers something by heart. I wanted to ask you, both of you actually, I know you, Johnny, that you joined John Sandow Books in 1986. And um, I was wondering if you could both tell us the prequel of you joining this bookshop and how did you end up being the co-owner and working there? Well, I, I started by accident. I had just left university and I was living nearby this shop with a friend. And what I really wanted to do was get a holiday job so that I could write like a lot of people who work in bookshops, really, I went in because I wanted to write. And I found that I loved it and got drawn into it. To begin with, I was going to leave, but then I didn't. And John Sando decided he was going to retire. And 
the two of us at that stage who were working there were lent money by a customer to buy it. So we bought it from John Sando and I stayed. If somebody had told me in 1986 I would be there 35 years later, I would have been appalled. <laughs> but, um, but I still love it. So accident is how I came to be there, really. So you were lent money by a customer. Yes. Was it someone who really liked your recommendations and your love of books or like really? The customer is my current partner, Stuart Mitchell. So there were two of us to whom he lent money. And the other one retired in about 2000, I think. We paid off the loan and we rather expected that the one who had lent us the money would go away. But far from that, he became even more interested and he's still there. So 35 years later, he's still there, but the others have gone. So Arabella's reason for being there is quite different. Well, it's also actually by accident. I went to help out in the autumn of 2012 and never left. This is what happens to people there. You start sometimes slightly in an unexpected way and then you never leave. Is this how you met? No, actually. <laughs> We, we knew it wasn't already a bookshop nature. romance. No. <laughs> no. But, but the romance hasn't been killed by the bookshop. Yeah. Far from it. It's lovely working together. Yeah. We keep trying on this podcast to find a bookshop romance. So. <laughs> <laughs> one of our colleagues, there's a bookshop romance there. One of our colleagues was, I think, asked out by a beautiful young woman and they got married. So that started in the shop. So it does happen. It does happen. Yeah, very much so. So I'd like to ask a little bit about how the bookshop survived all these years. You mentioned it dates back to 1957 when it was first opened. And we did some research on that to see what did the what did competition look like back in 1957. And from what we found, at least, there was only one main competitor, Haywood Hill in Mayfair. I wouldn't think of Haywood Hill as a competitor particularly. Funnily enough, I worked there briefly at once. And it was run by a and cousin it was run by a cousin many of mine. Years. Yeah, it's a big city, and we're two very small shops, so the city is big enough for the two of us not to feel too competitive. But having said that, of course, in 1957, the city was full of independent bookshops, and now there are about four. Why have we survived? It's very hard to say, other than that we just carry on doing what we enjoy doing. That's obviously a bit of an evasive answer. But if I try and articulate what I mean, I would say that the people working there are interested in books and enjoy the relationship of selling books to customers. I would say that we're all interested in and have been in literature. I would say that none of us are particularly mercenary. You don't do book selling if you want to make money really. We all enjoy working there or always have. It has a very good atmosphere. So it's always been a nice place to work. Um, I think also one of the things, I don't know if you've seen the catalogues that we do four times a year. Yes, yes. Uh, which we put together. There are a lot of work. They're fun to do, but there are a lot of work going through publishers' catalogues, finding all the best kind of big books of the next three months And also interesting things that might slip through the cracks, some wonderful short stories, you know, Miklos Banfi, we sold 50 copies of his short stories in the run up to Christmas, for instance. 
So it's sort of salt and spice for the sort of obvious big books. There's a very important point there, which is to do with selection and, and taste. Once upon a time, bookshops used to have very particular selections and people would choose a bookshop to go to because they liked that bookshop's selection. And with the rise of chain bookshops and indeed literary prizes, the role of bookshops as tastemakers has declined. So bookshops have, in a manner of speaking, forfeited their role. That sounds as though it's voluntary. It's not voluntary. It's what has happened. But booksellers have allowed it to happen a bit. But it's the nature of chain shops that selections are made centrally. Whereas one thing about both us and Haywood Hill is that we don't have another branch. So all the sense of our taste, our selection is centered on those premises and with these booksellers. So people come to us and they buy from our catalogues because those catalogues are made by us. The choices are our choices. No doubt we lose some people because they don't like our choices, but that's okay. There's another aspect too, perhaps, which is worth mentioning, which is, in addition to catalogues, is stock and backlist. And a number of bookshops, particularly chains, will be absolutely ruthless about their backlist. Any book that hasn't sold within the last six months, 12 months maximum, is out and is returned. So you can come to our shop and there'll be some authors, we won't have their work at all, we'll order it for you. But if you want, I don't know, Mrs. Gaskell or Jack Kerouac or Tatiana Tolstaya, we will have everything that we can get hold of in print. And it stays there till somebody wants it mm. because it's worth having. It's very interesting because some of our past guests have told us we were very curious about how public stays in books forms and whether it's one person influencing the other. So then the bookshop orders the books that people request on and on and on. So it seems to me that you are the opposite of that. You're not necessarily following the commercial taste, but you are curators. Yes, a funny thing happens with this word taste and curation. Taste is not used with books. It's used with soft furnishings. And the word curate is used with books and fine art. But actually, it's all the same thing. It's very important for bookshops to present their own taste, to have a character. Character is perhaps partly the building, but it's even more importantly a sense of what makes our character is the kind of books that are around. If a bookshop doesn't have a character then why would anybody come to you rather than go online? It's the sense of character is founded on taste, I think. I completely agree with that. And we see that in the recommendations given by algorithms instead of people and how so many readers complain about that. They say it doesn't matter how good these algorithms claim to be. They never recommend something that really fits what we feel like reading. It's really hard to replicate an actual person giving you a book recommendation. Well, you might also get a very, very bad recommendation from a person, which you wouldn't get from an algorithm. But it could work the other way too. It's just our impression, but maybe you can you can tell us if that's true or not. But apart from not going with the trend and trying to sell just books that will sell, but actually having a clear opinion and a character, as you mentioned, we feel that maybe part of what makes your bookshop so special is that you also have a relationship with writers, and sometimes you even discover names that end up being quite famous. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Is there any author that you've 
uncovered or... Well, Johnny, for instance, reviewed Edmund Duval's Hair with the Amber Eyes. Yeah. And, of course, loved it. And it went on to become this astonishing, deserved bestseller. I would be very hesitant to say that one had made a big contribution to an author. There are occasionally, there have been books where we've sold a lot of them, and The Hair with Amber Eyes is one. The one that sticks in my mind, actually, is before I even started there. It was a novel by Molly Keane called Good Behaviour. When I started there, I can remember we were selling an enormous quantity of a book called The Berlin Diaries, which then became very famous. The whole thing about setting up trends, one's not necessarily aware of it. You, you sell what you like. An author like David Mitchell. We sold David Mitchell very well from his first book because I had a proof of it and read it and loved it. So we sold it very So we've always sold David Mitchell very well. Hishamata is another one. From his first book, we've sold him very well. Elena Ferrante is, I think, another. Elena Ferrante is another. Yeah. Well, Arabella picked up a proof when I think in about the first week of coming it to the, the shop. It was the first. I had just started and was looking at proofs that were lying in the back office and came on that one and thought, this is interesting. Naples, just after the war, two young girls. It was an extraordinary thing. I mean, it was, as you know, far from her first novel, but it was the beginning of that epic sequence. That extraordinary thing of being able to, in the sort of, between being somebody whose books we sold and becoming a megastar, we had this extraordinary, unexpected opportunity to do a special edition of the first one, My Brilliant Friend, which was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And her signature, I mean, I'm no graphologist, but her signature is regular, even though she signed 126 copies. Absolutely regular, tidy, and straightforward. Nothing flamboyant at all. And every letter formed. I wonder if the fact that she's kept to herself so much is part of the mystery, right? Is part of the intrigue. I mean, she, you know, her early letters about that to, to her publishers, to the Europa publishers, she's quite clear that she doesn't want to be known right back in the 1990s, right at the beginning of her writing career, her publishing career. And I think it's good to respect that, actually. Yeah. But how do you get into the possession of these proofs? To, to get proofs? We get sent proofs all the time. Okay. Um, but, um, all around us. By they, the authors? So authors send you proofs? Or publishing no, the houses? Publishers. publishers. Okay. So we've got a new Murakami. A new Murakami. New Olivia Lang. I mean, um, we've got stacks the of them. <laughs> so that, that's how the book trade works, partly. There have been fewer proofs in the last year, actually, because people aren't in their shops. But broadly speaking, anything that the publishers are keen to create interest in, they will send proofs around and we will read a tiny fraction of them. And are these sent to most bookshops or do you have to be a special, well-known bookshop to get them? We well, certainly have a, have good relationships with publishers and their reps who go around visiting shops and telling you what's coming. It's not all done online. And those reps, the good reps, know what we're going to be interested in and will bring a bag with stuff. You say, hooray, what's, you know, what if we, I've got this and I've got this? And it's very useful. And so there is, with that relationship, the good reps of the publishers know what we're going to pick up on. Yeah, or they have, have a good idea they, of it. They hope. They want us to pick up on things. Obviously, they're salespeople, and they know that if we can do well with a book, that's going to be good for the book. So they want us to read it. 
because they know we work by personal recommendation. They want us to get behind a book. So in answer to your question, do other bookshops get sent through? I'm sure that, yes, they do. It'll be sort of radiate out a bit from central London. I should think we get more proofs than most bookshops, probably. But that's partly because we're old and I've been there a long time and because there aren't many independent shops to send them to. I was also wondering, maybe your reputation has also attracted some artists to your bookshop. Musicians and writers frequent John Sandow books. Can you tell us a bit about what they're looking for in there? Is it more specialized books or is it more escapist books? Well, that comes to a really interesting point straight away, which is, in a sense, we can't possibly tell you. (laughs) Booksellers have a sort of Hippocratic oath, like doctors. So if you come to the shop, I'm never going to tell anybody what books you buy, because it's not their business to know. They shouldn't ask. We could give you a really, really general answer to your question, but it's, you know, would kind of kill the question. Well, we can say a bit more than that. First of all, picking up on what Arabella said about the Hippocratic Oath, the thing that John Sando once said to me, he said, I sometimes feel myself to be a bit like a GP, which is a general practitioner, an old-fashioned doctor. What he meant by that was the GP will know their patient very, very well in a very narrow way. So they'll know all about their health not about whether they like gardening or whether they like opera, but he'll he'll know about their health and he'll know more about their health than anybody else. And in a comparable way, the bookseller will know where the relationship works, will know more about what the customer likes in the way of books than probably anybody else. Won't know what they do for a living, perhaps, but in a very narrow way, you know somebody well. Now, going back to your question, There are people who have publicly said that they come to us. Um, One is Elton John, one is Tom Stoppard. So I'm not going to discuss what books Tom Stoppard buys, but Elton John, I'm not going to discuss what he buys, other than to say that he had a big exhibition of his photography, as everybody knows. So it wouldn't be any surprise to say that we sell him a lot of photographic books. So this discretion is probably why famous people come to you. Books are a personal, such a personal thing, and they should be. And now for the bookseller's quiz. How many books are in your shop? 29 and a half thousand. What was the last book you sold in your shop? The Diaries of Chip Channel. The Wartime Childhood by Gaia Cervadillo, one of our cooking press. What would you do if you couldn't sell books anymore? Gardener. Also gardener. <laughs> what books are you reading at the moment? The new Edmund Duval Letters to Commander. What's your second favorite bookshop? Daunt Books, the big daunts in Maryland High Street. Daunts is wonderful. There was a bookshop I used to, years ago I lived in Vienna and there was a bookshop there whose name I forget, which I absolutely loved, which had a marvellous mix of German and European authors, some English, and it's where I discovered lots of European authors, even though I can no longer remember its name, is my other favourite bookshop. You mentioned John Sando and I wanted to ask What was he like? Because he he was quite a legend among bibliophiles. He was, what was he like? He was very, he was very good looking. 
he was gay, he was very eager reader, but did not have any pretensions to writing. He didn't want to be a writer. He wanted to be a bookseller. And he enjoyed the process of fixing people up with the books they wanted to read. It's as basic as that. He set up the shop with someone else called, a woman called Felicity Gwynne, who was the sister of Elizabeth David, the great English cookery writer who introduced Italian food and French food and all other joyful things. To, and she, Johnny didn't work with her. She had yeah. gone by the time Johnny came. But there are people who still remember her and say she was absolutely extraordinary and could be really annoyed by what people bought and sometimes was known to throw books at people. <laughs> and, she was absolutely passionate. Yeah, that. very passionate. Is that is that a tradition that you keep to this? Well, throwing books are customers. <laughs> no, but occasionally we've thrown books away, particularly objectionable. We have been known to gather their books off the shelf and, yeah. and chuck them out. What would qualify as an objectionable author? Well, the authors with a really good professional feel. If they've got a new book, they'll come and say, hello, can I sign some copies maybe? But they won't hassle you about whether you stop. They leave the question of whether you have their books up to you, up to the bookshop. And you get some authors who will hassle you as a bookshop. They want you to have, and you think, it's my business whether I have your books. And I know better than you whether your books are going to sell here. A lot of authors think that just because you have their books in stock, they will therefore sell. Well, it doesn't work like that. And so you get some authors, as in any other walk of life, who are just straightforward bullies, and that's unpleasant. And the more they try that, the more you want to... The more their books, their books go in the bed. <laughs> yeah. They're the ones likely to have maybe books thrown at them. At that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's only customers. <laughs> So um, speaking of traditions in your shop, so for, for anyone who misunderstood, this is not a tradition in your shop. You do not throw books at customers. <laughs> <laughs> but you do have a lovely tradition that I'd like to ask you a bit more about. We read that every year in the run up to Christmas, you publish a thousand copies of uh, specially commissioned short work, um, mostly short stories, but you've also featured uh, first chapters of novels, poetry collections, memoirs with the quite select list of contributors. So what I wanted to ask about that is, I understand that you're giving it away for free, right? Yes. Is, is there a reason behind that? Are you hoping to achieve a certain purpose with this very generous offer? Well, it, it, it originated when people started talking about discounting in the mid-90s. Until then, you couldn't discount in the UK. And then suddenly they removed the network agreement and people were allowed to discount. But we, like other independent shops, or we can't compete with discounting, but we thought it would be a nice thing to be able to offer something to our customers. So it would cost us a bit, but it's a different approach to discounting. So that was the origin of it. Now, actually, nobody discounts in their shops really much, um, but we carry on doing it and we've forgotten all about that. Uh, we do it because we like doing it. It's lovely to do it. At lunchtime today, we were talking about who we might ask to do the next one. That's lovely. And who gets these copies? There are only a thousand copies. How do you pick which of your customers are the lucky ones? To well, whoever's in the shop. Then we send them out with Christmas orders. Yeah. If it's... somebody orders half a dozen books in late November or beginning of December, then we put a copy in with them. So most of the packages we send out for that time of year will happen. Okay. You make a mental note then to <laughs> our orders correctly then. <laughs> 
So tell me a little bit more about the selection of books you have in your shop. It's quite an outstanding selection. How do you pick your books from the millions of books getting published every year? Well, as Arabella mentioned earlier, the trade works by proofs and by reps, uh, reps and publishers, catalogs. representatives and catalogs. So we get shown, for example, this afternoon, although because of lockdown, it works instead of being visited by the reps, they send me online, they send me files of what they're publishing. So for example, today, I was going through lists that Faber are publishing in May and June this year. And I go down them and I see what they're doing. And I'll say, I don't want this. I don't want this. Zero, zero, ten, zero, two, zero, one, 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 zero, 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 zero. So I go down it. It's very rudimentary. There's no mystery in it. But how does um, one choose? How... You choose on the basis of subject, author. Is there an author that you always say yes to? Yes. Many. Many. Yeah. Many. And there are authors that I would always say no to. There are some best-selling authors who, who we simply would not sell. We wouldn't sell them with the wrong, with the wrong location, with the wrong demographic. So they might sell millions of copies. They might all thousands in motorway service stations or... And or, from Amazon, or because Amazon. Amazon will give such enormous discounts. I mean, Johnny mentioned discounting earlier, and I suppose one should make the point that we're not against discounts on principle. It's simply that as an independent, we get small discounts from the publisher. So our margins are very, very tight. Mm. We have bricks and mortar premises. We have rent pay. We simply cannot afford to give discounts because we don't have the margin. Unlike big chains, they get much bigger discounts from publishers, as do Amazon. They can really ask for pretty much what they like. I don't really believe we'd sell more copies of a book if we did discount it on the whole. But it's a really important point to to make, right? Because we do hear this a lot, people comparing prices that they find in small independent bookshops versus what they see online. We're just not comparing things correctly when, when we do that. And I think it's important for readers. And it can sometimes be, um, just occasionally, it can feel a little bit awkward because somebody might say, oh, I find the book cheaper, you know, wherever. And there's the sort of implication that we've been almost sort of overcharging them. And then it seems sort of important to say, this is the price set by the publisher. It's not something that... You're not trying to, to make an additional profit. Far from it. Yeah, well, Far from it. Uh, and if somebody wants to get it cheaper somewhere else, then they can do that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a, a book is not a need. A book is, you know, you're, you want a book, you don't need a book necessarily. So, you know, if you have a price and the customer is willing to pay it, then it's fair enough. I think that whereas a few years ago, everybody thought that Amazon was the brave new world, people are now beginning increasingly to realize that it's not just a brave new world with Amazon. It's a world that Amazon are not your friend that they are a great world-eating crocodile. They will have your head too, if they possibly can. And if you want to live in a world of man-eating crocodiles, then carry on buying from Amazon. But if you want to live in a world where there are high streets with shops, where people can walk and meet one another and do things and go to a bookshop, then you need to buy your books in a bookshop. You need to support that kind of world. I'm really glad to, to hear you say that because I had this exact conversation with a friend very recently. She might be listening to this, actually. And 
you could argue on this topic for a long, long time, but I think the ultimate argument is what kind of world do you want to have? A very efficient one where you get packages all the time, or do you want a more human world where you can walk into a bookshop, talk to a person, get a recommendation? I, I think that our children, or perhaps I hope it's our children and not our grandchildren, but we'll find in due course that buying things from Amazon is regarded as comparable to throwing your plastic cup out of your window. It's about the kind of world you want to live in. 50 years ago, you would throw your plastic water bottle out of the car window or into the sea. Nobody will do that now or nobody will be seen doing it. To me, it's the same argument. Do you want to live in a world like this or like that? Yeah. I'll uh, abruptly change topics now to ask you, <laughs> to ask you um, something about a topic that uh, for us right now is very important because we've just started on this podcast uh, journey. And I noticed that you have uh, not one, but actually a few podcasts going on. Um, there are conversations with authors about their books, which in a sense are kind of book launches adapted. And you also do readings for something called Woad House Wednesday. Can you tell us how you embarked on this podcast world? Do you like it? And how, how was it received? Well, it began, we, we did the first recording. We've done talks with authors for many years, since about 2014, when we got a little bit of space by taking on the lease of the small shop next door. And then in September 2019, William Dalrymple did a new book. When we have the talks in the shop, we've only got room for 30 people. We email the people on the list saying who would like a ticket. They go so quickly. And William, of course, hundreds of people wanted to come to his talk. And so we had for ages thought we should record them. That was why we began recording them. And so we had those set up for a good six months before this strange new world broke upon us. And then it was very handy and we could continue. And as for the Woodhouse Wednesdays, it was really to cheer everybody up. There's a more particular reason that those started, which was that um, Arabella and I read to one another. And I had read a lot of Woodhouse to Arabella. So she and one of the other, the chap in our shop who does the podcast, they said, come on, Johnny, why don't you do podcasts, read Woodhouse? So I thought, I don't want to do that. And they said, come on, come on. And they persuaded me to do it. So I did it. So it was to do with lockdown. And uh, and did it work? Did it cheer people up? Oh my God, yes. Yeah. We have had torrents of emails of people saying, thank you, what a joy, what a hoot. It didn't make, mean that we sold lots of copies of Woodhouse, but it's not about necessarily selling the books. It was. It felt like something we had to do. You know, people were suffering, our customers, yeah. some many of whom become friends, are all struggling away anxious in this new situation, particularly with the first lockdown, which was so new to everybody and people were so scared and separated from each other. So it was a way, what is that phrase that people use a lot now, reaching out. It was a kind of reaching out and a squeeze of the hand and laughter. Yeah, laughter. And and also the basic thing of people didn't know that we were open. We weren't open in the sense that people couldn't come in the door, but we were doing mail order all the time. And people didn't know that. Some people did, but we wanted more people to know that. So the podcast became a way of, it's another way of saying, we're here, we're here. You might not be able to come to us, but we can come to you and we can send you things. So keep on communicating with us. Do you have any tips for us from your podcaster experience? 
for the podcasting. For the podcast, I think enjoy it. Yeah, enjoy it. I'm not too serious. That's mission accomplished. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned deliveries, and I know that you do bundles, and I think you were doing them before COVID. Because you do this um, selection of books wrapped in paper with ribbons. There's two separate things going on there. There's the subscriptions with people paying up front uh, a book to come out to them, let's say, six times a year or 12 times a year. It's something a lot of people like to give as gifts. And they're all different permutations of that, six paperbacks or six hardback fiction or whatever. The book bundles were an idea of Arabella's and somebody else at the shop. Well, again, just people in that first lockdown were absolutely seemed to be desperate for uh, distraction. And so we tried to think of things that would amuse people. Also, people had more time. There was, I know we just said that we never tell what people buy. There was somebody who bought everything that Zola had ever written. And I think sort of broke down after two days of trying to read this mountain of Zola. An inspiration and an aspiration and a valiant attempt, which I think failed by day three. And so people did have time. And so to sort of nourish that, to find things that would that would fit. Yeah, the idea was to present half a dozen or three crime novels or women's writing, various, you could make up all sorts of different categories. Not always the um, most obvious. With the crime, for instance, none of them were very nasty. They were sort of classic crime that maybe people hadn't read for a long time because lots of people didn't want the sort of grisly, the grisly tales because life was quite grisly enough. They're very fiddly to manage, so it quite suits the way we work to do fiddly things, but it, it wouldn't suit a lot of bookshops because there's too much work involved. Yeah, I understand. Um, I know that you have a very international collection of books. And um, yeah. a friend of mine, for instance, has self-imposed not to read any Anglo-Saxon literature for a few years just to get to know other voices. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think is a country or a region whose literature or voice should be more popular than it is? Well, hearing the question, my immediate thought is Arab literature. It's a slightly arbitrary thing to say, because there's quite a lot published, actually, nowadays. It didn't used to be, but there are small publishers publishing Arab literature. And I say that because there's obviously such a failure of understanding between the Islamic world and the Western Europe. The more they could read of one another literature, that would seem to be a good thing. I think from time to time, you see a sudden burst of publishing from various countries, um, suddenly you see a lot of books coming from Romania, for example, or there's some Estonian classics being published recently, and that's wonderful. Would you recommend a Romanian book to us, since we're both Romanian? <laughs> we're both Romanian. Yes. Um, would you count Gregor von Retsuri as Romanian? He was a Romanian citizen. Um, I saw that here in Spain they have Mircea Cartarescu translated in Spanish. I don't know if he was ever translated in English. Actually. Yes. Just now, we've yeah, got one in yeah, our new catalog. Yeah. There's a Penguin paperback, new edition in the Penguin Classic, which is in our new catalog online. Oh, well, that's good to know. Mm. But I haven't read it. <laughs> and, and since we're on this topic, are there certain books that you think people should read more of, whether it's a, a specific genre or you already mentioned some countries that maybe people should look at more? Or I'm very cautious of saying people should do this or should do that. 
you wouldn't be a bookseller if you didn't like that. Uh, the more people read of literature and translation, the better. Lots of literature and translation is good. Yeah. Actually, Arabella is absolutely right there. Particularly in the Brexit world, uh, it makes one want everybody to read books by non British people. <laughs> Fill their heads with the wonders of Europe. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's interesting. For instance, I find the type of humor and sarcasm in Czech authors or Russian authors much more mm. like my culture than, you know, if I if I read an American or an English author. But I mostly read American and, and English literature. Well, the black humor of Central Europe is absolutely wonderful. They've got a lot of history to have black humor about in Czechoslovakia, for example. Uh, it looks that we've got a bit of history coming our way to have some black humour about. So I think we should look for some really nasty humour coming out of the UK quite soon. Um, as we're coming towards the end, I wanted to ask you something that you mentioned in the beginning, that you, you wanted to become a bookseller because you wanted to become a writer. Are you a writer? I have published novels, but not for a long time. Okay. Did the bookselling experience help you in becoming a writer? No, I would say the reverse. Probably. Oddly enough, there are not many booksellers who become successful writers. Occasionally you get them, but they've probably only done a little bit of bookselling. Perhaps it's... Uh, I, well, actually, I don't know why that is. <laughs> I, I think it's something to do with... In the UK, people don't like those who do two things. They don't like polymath. They don't like... You're supposed to have one horse and stay on it. I think being a bookseller could also result in as a, a budding writer being also a bookseller and that was reading so much. could possibly be a sort of erosion of self-confidence there when you're coming there across the sort of mass that. of stunningly good writing yeah. that there is and feeling that, God, how do I really make a contribution to this? Harder to have maintain that strength of purpose. Yes, a lot of writers in the 20s think the world is waiting for their work. And they need to feel that. 20 years of working in a bookshop makes you realize that nobody is waiting for your book. Occasionally, very occasionally, there is a book that people are really waiting for, but mostly they're not. Yeah, I mean, I, I never uh, considered myself a writer, but I think Lana knows the story. I took one, exactly one writing class. And the first day of this class, they asked us to spontaneously write something down and then read it in front of everyone else. And I just felt like everyone there was so much better at writing than I could, than I could ever be. And I thought, okay, probably the world is not waiting for, for me to become a writer because there are plenty of talented people out there already. Well, you have to do it because you enjoy doing it. That's the yes. only reason for it. Because it can be quite intimidating when you see such talent everywhere. And you think, yeah. yeah. But there's so much, in terms of being successful, there's so much luck involved. I, I suppose everything, but... There really is a lot of luck involved in being successful. Many very good books disappear without trace. Yeah. And sometimes fairly indifferent books become bestsellers because, as Johnny said, just, just luck. The right thing, the right moment, a little lift of this without a good cover or a bad cover. Yeah, I guess like, like everything else in life. I mean, yeah, we, yeah, exactly. There might be an element of luck in everything. Well, yeah, you like the things you like and you learn to know what it is you like and you find value in those. And that's enough. You don't have to require everybody else to subscribe to the same view. 
Um, I'd like to ask you, I'd like to not miss this opportunity and ask you from uh, such experienced booksellers like yourself to someone who hopes to maybe one day soon become a bookseller. Would you have some advice to give me for starting off in this career? Uh, gosh, enjoy, enjoy encouraging people to read what you like, but listen to what they like too, because you learn from customers all the time and that's exciting. So the, there's a traffic involved and that traffic is two-way. It's two-way, yeah. And it's where the fun of it is. Follow your own instinct in selections and not just stock what publishers tell you you should stock. You have to hope your instinct is a good one, but 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 you need an instinct. You need a nose for it. I think. Well, there's only one way to find out. So yeah. post it. <laughs> good luck. Good luck. Yeah. Keep tell us how it goes. Yeah. I, I will actually. Me too. Me too. I I hope we we open within a year. I want to say. Oh, wow. wonderful! so so much for being with us today thanks for asking thank you good luck thank you thank you for listening to our chat today we'll see you back here in two weeks in the meantime don't forget to subscribe follow us on social media and leave us voice messages at anchor.fm slash now sit back relax and enjoy a good book <laughs>